Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. Glad that we can be here worshiping together. I want to start off by telling you a little bit about a group of people that has banded together in a unique way. This group started off in the late 19th century in Germany. And like many groups, they came together because they had a common worldview. They shared certain things in common. They valued the same types of things. And when they first came together, they even published some papers and sort of distributed them to defend some of their actions, some of their behaviors. Now, at the heart of what this group valued were things like authenticity, genuineness, openness. They wanted to be in relationships in which one could know and be known. And anything that would cause shame, they made it their goal to get rid of so that people could build up a healthy self-confidence and a positive self-image. Now, maybe some of what this group was all about, as I've described them, maybe that resonates with you a little bit. I know that it does with me. And actually, those values that I described are some of the most important values to a lot of my peers, the millennial generation. Now, what I haven't told you yet is that the one factor that this group saw as the primary instigator of shame was clothes. That's right, I'm talking about nudists. For nudists, clothes are not something that keep us warm primarily or, or make us look fashionable, but they're actually something that keep us from one another. They teach us to fear the fact that if we really opened up, if we really let people see us for who we were, that we would be met with rejection. So they made it their goal to band together in communities where they could be free from the burden of clothing. And now they can be found together sort of all around the world living in these communities. Now, for nudists, what's interesting is that the one thing that they see as sort of the key to experience true comfort and security is full physical exposure. Now, for most of us, exactly the opposite is true, right? For most of us, the idea of being physically exposed is a terrifying thought. I, I remember a conversation that I had with a friend. Actually, it was, it was a friend's dad some years back, um, which is a little bit awkward, but he was telling me about this, he, this recurring dream that he used to have. And in this dream, he found himself back in high school, walking the halls of his school, and as he's approaching his locker, he's noticing that everyone around him is staring at him and trying not to laugh. And he looks down, and to his horror, he realized he forgot to put clothes on that morning. And this was a dream that he would have over and over and over again, and every time it was terrifying. And I'm pretty sure that he's still trying to work through that with his therapist today. But what I find so interesting is that the thing, physical exposure— is a thing that for some people is essential to finding comfort and security. And for other people, it's the thing that will most certainly lead to fear and rejection. We're going to spend our morning in Psalm 139. And what we find in Psalm 139 is that we stand fully exposed before God. 
right? Not physically, that's not the point, but, but we come before God and we are fully exposed in that he knows everything about us. He can see everything about us. There's nothing that we can do to hide from God. And for some people, that's a terrifying thought. Oh my goodness, God knows everything about me? Even, even that thing? And, and that's a terrifying thought for them. But for other people, and for David, as we're going to see in this passage, being fully exposed before God is the path to true comfort and security. Why is that? Well, we're going to look at the answer to that question as we look in this passage this morning. So, Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David. And as a psalm, it's a, it's a prayer. He's talking to God in this passage. But it's more than just a prayer. It's actually a prayer that was set to music. This is a song. Because the truths that are found in this passage, they aren't just truths for David. These are truths that they wanted to be sung for the good of the congregation. So as we look at this passage today, we're going to find things in here that are truths for David, but also for you and me. When we look at the first six verses of this psalm, one of the things that we see is that David is going to, he's going to make a point that's going to guide the rest of the psalm. And that point, David simply says, is that God knows me. God knows me, David says. And then in the rest of the psalm, he goes on to talk about the different ways that God knows him and why it is that that's so important to him. But let's read these first six verses. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So what's David saying here? Well, he starts off and he says, God knows all of my actions, right? There's, there's nothing that I can do that God doesn't see, that he doesn't know about. But God's knowledge of us goes beyond just our actions, just beyond seeing what we do. He actually knows our thoughts. David says, you perceive them from afar. But even more than just our actions and our thoughts, David says, you are familiar with all my ways. He says, you know my habits, my patterns of thought and action. You know all these things about me, God. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, and my wife Lindsay and I went out to dinner. And we got to this restaurant, and we sat down, and we were looking at the menu. And as I'm looking at the menu, I'm thinking, you know what? I know that Lindsay's going to order one of two things. She's either going to get the gnocchi or the penne pasta, right? It's going to be one of those two things. I turned out to be right. It was the gnocchi. Now, how, how did I know that, right? We had never been to this restaurant before. She had never ordered that particular dish before. But over the years, Lindsay and I have eaten a lot of meals together. We've spent a lot of time together. And as we've done that, I've gotten to know her. I know her preferences. I know what she likes, what she dislikes. I know some of her patterns. So sometimes I might even know what Lindsay is going to think or say about something, maybe even before she does. 
because I know her. Right? And that's what David is saying here, is that God knows me in that sort of deep and personal way. You see, for David, this idea that God knows him, this is not just a theological point that he wants to say, you know what, this is true. He could have said, God is omniscient. He could have said, God knows everything. And while David knew that that was true, that's not what he says here. What he says here is, God knows me. Because this is not some abstract theological concept for David. This is what gets him up in the morning, right? This is what he puts his hope in. This is what gets him through the day. The fact that God knows him, right, deeply and personally. And the same thing is true for you and me. God knows us with that same sort of deep and personal knowledge. And then what we see in verse 6 there, as David's sort of thinking about this, this knowledge that God has of him, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too lofty for me to attain. He's saying, God knows me so deeply, I can't even wrap my mind around it. I can't even fathom this kind of knowledge that God has of me. We all have a need to be known. Not just a desire, but actually a need to be known. And not a need to be known of, like people know who we are, like they know that these things about us, but actually a need to be known in the most intimate and deepest of ways. Psychologists today agree that one of the fundamental human needs, one of the things that's sort of most basic to the things that we need is just to be known by other people. Think about the times in life where you have felt the most lonely. Maybe there were times when no one else was around. Right? That's possible. But I bet there's times in your life, if you think about it, where you have felt lonely and yet you've been surrounded by people. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in the airport ready to catch a flight back to Chicago. My dad and I had just spent a great weekend, just like a fun father-son weekend in Phoenix, and we were coming back. So I was sitting in the airport waiting for my flight, and I thought, you know, I'll give my mom a call and just see how she's doing and let her know about all the fun that we just had this last weekend. So I call my mom, and she answers the phone in tears. She had just gotten a call a few minutes earlier from my uncle who told her that my, my aunt, who'd been in the hospital for a couple of weeks, wasn't going to make it. So my mom and I talked for a few minutes, and she cried. I kind of found out what was going on. Then I hung up the phone. I'm sitting in the middle of the airport, trying to hold back the tears, and I'm looking around me, and there's hundreds of people all around me. And not a single one of them had any idea what was going on in my life at that time. And I felt so alone, right? more lonely than I've probably ever felt before, surrounded by people and nobody knew me. Some of the times that we find ourselves most lonely, it's not necessarily when we're alone, but when nobody understands us, when nobody knows us. We all have this deep need to be known and understood. Think about the closest relationships that you have in your life. What is it that makes those relationships close? Isn't it the fact that you know each other? 
that you understand each other. Now, sure, you, you spend time talking about the Cubs and the latest episode of The Bachelor or what school your kids are looking at going to. You talk about those things, absolutely. But then sometimes you go deeper. You get below the surface. You tell them about how rough things really are between you and your husband. Or you tell them that you can't even sleep at night because you're in this financial hole that you don't know how you can get out of. Or you tell them that you're scared because you're afraid that this time you pushed your kids a little bit too hard and now you're maybe going to lose them. Now I know what you might be thinking. What do you know about marriage and finance and kids? What are you, like 16? (laughs) Now I know that's true because some of you have said that to me before. (laughs) And I don't have kids yet, but I am married and I do have bills to pay. But that's besides the point. The point is that we all have this need to be known on the deepest level, right? We all have this need to be in close relationship with people. And what David is rejoicing over in this psalm is the fact that God knows me like that more than anybody else could. And therefore we have the potential to have this relationship with God that's deeper than any of our human relationships because he knows us like nobody else can. We have a need to be known, a need to be known at the deepest level. David understood that God knew him at that deep level, and he knows you and me in just the same way. How is it, though, that God has such a deep knowledge of David? David gives us a couple of reasons in the rest of the passage. One reason comes in this next section of verses, and what David says is, well, you know what? The reason that God knows me so well, one of the reasons that God knows me so well is because everywhere I go, God is with me. Everywhere I go, God is with me. Starting in verse 7, this is what he says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David was a man who spent a lot of time on the road. He had to travel a lot for work, right? Out to the fields with the sheep, to the front lines to fight Goliath, out to the wilderness to run from King Saul. He was on the road a lot. And he found, some, he found himself in some pretty dark and dangerous situations sometimes. And here David says, you know what? Even then, God is with me. In fact, there's nowhere on earth that I could go where he wouldn't be there. And even if I went up into the heavens or if I went down into the depths of the earth, God would still be there. How about if I crossed over the sea? You know what? God would, God would be there too. Then he says, what if I go out on the darkest of nights, right? They don't have electricity back then. There's no city lights. So at nights, especially on a dark, cloudy night when there's no moon and stars, it's really dark. Like, you know one of those nights where you can't even hardly see your hand in front of your face? David says, what if I go out into that kind of darkness? Is God still there with me? Does he still see me there? You bet he does. You bet he sees me even there. 
this last Christmas, we were at my parents' house opening up gifts. And my brother-in-law, Sam, gets a gift from my other brother-in-law, Zach. So Sam opens up this gift, and it's a flashlight. So he, he kind of pulls it out and says, it's a flashlight. Thanks. And Zach goes, oh, that's not just any flashlight. That's a flashlight with 700 lumens. 700 lumens, Zach says. And he's so excited about this. And then he goes on to tell us how when he bought this flashlight, he brought it home. He opened up the packaging. He took the flashlight out, put the batteries in, and turned it on so he could witness the glory of 700 lumens. Then he took the batteries back out, put them in the package, put the flashlight back in its package, wrapped it up all like it was brand new and hadn't been opened, and gave it to Sam. Now, I had no idea really how bright 700 lumens was. But when Sam turned that thing on, 700 lumens is pretty bright. If you're in a dark room and you turn on a 700 lumen flashlight, you're not in a dark room anymore, right? That thing lights up the room. God is brighter than even a 700 lumen flashlight. He's at least like two or three 700 lumen flashlights duct taped together. I'm sure of it, right? There's no darkness that's too dark for him. His light pierces through every darkness. And David found himself in some incredibly dark places. Running for his life from King Saul. Caught up in an adulterous affair and then murdering the woman's husband out of fear to protect himself. Just wailing on the floor after the death of his baby boy. David found himself in some really dark places. And we don't know exactly when he wrote this psalm, but I'm sure that he'd been through some of that darkness already. And yet he says, you know, even in that darkest spot, God was still with me. I know that there's some people here who find themselves in a dark place this morning. Depression, anxiety, illness, grief. I'm not sure what your darkness is. But I do know that God says he's with you even in the darkness. Even in that blackest of night when you can't even see your hand in front of your face. God is there in the darkness with you. So David says, God knows me. He knows me because he's always with me. But then he gives us another reason after that. The the next reason that he says is because, you know what? God created me. He created me. And he says this starting in verse 13. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Your frame, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I came into existence, David says, because God created me. My life began because God wanted it to, be, to begin. When I was in my mother's womb, God was knitting me together there. That's what David's saying. Now, that would have been reasonable for David to believe back in his day, right? But, but we know better, right? We know much more about 
science and, and medicine, we know how life really starts. Well, on the one hand, yes, right? On the one hand, we know far more about science and medicine than David ever could have even imagined. So we've got all sorts of scientific explanations for how it is that life begins. But there are theological explanations for those very same things. And that's what David is talking about here. The fact that the reason his life began, the reason your life began, the reason my life began is because God wanted it to begin. Right? That is a fundamental reason that we have to hold on to. We can't let that go. So God knows you because he designed you. He created you. Do you ever feel like nobody gets you? Like maybe you've, you've got this, this passion, this idea, this thing that gets you really fired up. And then you go and you tell somebody all about it. And they just kind of go, oh, that's interesting. And you're just like, don't you get it? Like, don't you, don't you know me at all? Don't you understand me? Why are you not excited about this? God is the one that gave you those passions. He's the one who created you just the way that you are. So he understands you in a way that nobody else can. And as David is thinking about this, as David's thinking about the incredible truth that God knows him because he's the God who not only created the universe, but he's also the God who created him. And not only that, but this God who created him is the God who sees everything that he's done, both the good and the bad. David's thinking about all this stuff that he's said in the psalm so far. And then he can't help but just burst out in praise at this point. At verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And then just in case he's dreaming, he's like, is this too good to be true? He's like, pinch me. See what he says? He says, when I awake, I'm still with you. He's like, this is too good to be true. How can it be that God loves me in this way when he knows everything about me? It's like, I've got to be dreaming. Somebody pinch me. But he's not dreaming because he says, I wake up and I'm still with you. I wonder how often we think about our relationship like God in that way. How often we think about the way that he knows us and understands us and loves us. Does that lead us to cry out in praise like it does David here? I think that it should sometimes. So we've seen in the psalm up to this point that for David, the idea of standing fully exposed before God is something that's incredibly sweet and comforting for him. But is it that way for everybody? In the next section, David goes on to talk about God's enemies. And you know what? It doesn't sound like such good news for them. Let's read starting in verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who, rebel, who, who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What's going on here? Right? That seems like a big jump from sort of the, the warm, fuzzy that feeling that we've had in the passage up to this point to, God, I hope that you reach out and kill your enemies. What's going on here? This is a passage that's been really confusing 
for a lot of people. But I think if we understand a couple things about it, it sort of helps us to understand what's going on here. First thing, notice who David's talking about. These are not his enemies. These are God's enemies. Right? These are the people that have set themselves up in opposition to God. They speak evil about God. They have no regard for his holy name. He says they're bloodthirsty men. They're murderers. They're the ones that go around killing the very lives that God has created. So these are God's enemies. And David says, I will consider them, I will consider God's enemies to be my enemies. Now Jesus tells us to love our enemies. He doesn't tell us to love God's enemies. And there is a difference. And David doesn't reach out against his enemies. Instead, he goes to God and he asks God to act justly. And I think that brings us to the the second thing that I want to say about this, the second thing we need to understand, which is that I think the reason David puts this here is that he's just gone on talking about how God knows everything about him and about everyone else. And inherent in that idea is that God who sees everything that everyone has done, both good and bad, is the only person who's qualified to be the supreme judge. You can't hide any evidence from God. There's no withholding evidence from him because he sees everything. So David's understanding this, and he asks God to step out and to do what is just. Now I want to ask you, as you sit here this morning, as we've worked our way through this psalm so far. Does this passage strike you as good news or bad news? You might be tempted to think, well, I suppose it depends on how good I've been, right? If God sees everything, I suppose it depends on how good I am. I suppose it depends on if that last day when I stand before God, he's going to pronounce me guilty or innocent. And to that, I want to say, Yes, absolutely. And at the same time, no, absolutely not. You see, it's true that on that last day when we stand before God, the thing that will determine whether this passage is good news or bad news for us is whether or not God finds us to be guilty or innocent. But the thing that determines whether or not God will find us guilty or innocent on that day has nothing to do with how good we've been. Because if we truly understand the kind of knowledge that David is talking about here, that God has really seen everything that we've done and that he knows every thought that we've ever thought, if we were really honest with ourselves, we would know that if we stood before God on that last day, we would be found guilty. So it doesn't matter how good or how bad we've been. The only thing that determines whether or not this passage is good news or bad news for us is whether we've trusted in Christ so that our guilt— becomes his guilt, and his innocence becomes our innocence. That's the only thing that determines whether or not this passage is good news or bad news for us today. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm worried that this passage might be bad news for me. I want to encourage you with the fact that there's, there is good news for you also. And the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late to start a relationship with God. It's not too late to trust in Christ, right? We see in Revelation 3.20 that Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts 
knocking, waiting for us to open it and to welcome him in and to have a relationship with us. And if you're here this morning and you feel like that sounds good to you, like you want to start a relationship like that, please don't leave here today until you've done that. And don't leave here today until you've talked to somebody about that. But if you're sitting here today and you feel like, you know what, I do have a relationship with God, then I want to ask you a question too. Do you really believe that this passage is good news for you? Because if I'm honest with myself, sometimes I have a hard time understanding this passage to be good news. When I think about the fact that God knows everything about me, everything I've ever thought or done or said, sometimes my response is more one of of fear, of shame, maybe of anxiety. God doesn't want us to be ashamed. He doesn't want us to be fearful of him. Romans 8.1, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're here today and you have a relationship with God, then we need to learn how to see ourselves as God sees us. We need to learn to forgive ourselves for the things that God has already forgiven us. So that when we think about this knowledge that God has of us, the fact that he knows everything about us and that he still accepts us, that our response is not one of fear and shame, but it's one of praise, like we see with David. That's the kind of relationship we want to have with God. That's the kind of disposition that we want to have towards God in our relationship with him. At the end of the psalm, David finishes with a prayer in which he asks that God would know him more. This is what he says in verse 23 and 24. He says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, God, would you point out to me those areas of sin in my life? God, would you, would you show me the things that are wrong with me? I want to see him. And we should be praying that same prayer. Maybe, maybe it's sins that we know, we know about and we've just sort of ignored them. We've, we've pushed them to the side so we don't have to deal with them. Or maybe there are even sins that you know, we're not even aware about yet. We should be coming before God and asking that he would help us to see those things in our lives that are not pleasing to him. Those things that he wants us to work on, to surrender over to him. David understood that he stood before God fully exposed. That the God who knew him, who was always with him, who created him, the God who alone was the just judge, has invited David in. That he stands with open arms waiting for him to come. God does the same for you and for me today. For me, that is an incredibly comforting thought. I hope it is for you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you know us in a way that's so deep and so intimate and so personal 
that no one else could ever know us like you do. No one else could ever understand us like you do. And that because of that, no one else could ever love us like you do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that so that we could turn to you over and over and over again with confidence that as we stand before you fully exposed, we do so as those who have been forgiven by Christ, redeemed by Christ, so that we stand before you holy and pure. God, we thank you for loving us. We hope that we, we hope that you would ask us that you would help us, Lord, to love you in return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.